Hey everybody! Welcome back to my channel. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you're new here, welcome. If you've been here before, I love you so much. I love interacting with you and I'm so excited that you're back here. I love that you're a part of the little family that I've built around me and just thank you all so much for all the love and support that you show each and every time I put out a video. You might notice that the camera angle is a little different. It's up higher. Uh, the reason for that is that my desk is super flimsy. So when I move around a little bit, it's been bouncing and honestly, my videos were making me a little seasick. So I was like, yeah, I got to mount my screen onto the wall so that it's not bouncing around every time I move around. So now you're up at a little bit higher of an angle and hopefully it will help with the bouncing that's been going on in these recent videos because it drives me crazy. I hate it. So let's give this a go and hope it turns out for the best because I cannot deal with the bouncing in every single video. Tonight's episode is one that I'm actually pretty excited about because while this man was on the periphery of the Mafia, he wasn't really even in the Mafia. So this is my first attempt at a more true crime-like episode rather than just like a rundown of a criminal that's involved in organized crime. So let's see how I do on a guy who isn't only in the Mafia, isn't a made member, isn't part of any organized crime ring or anything like that, and is just straight up a killer. This episode was recommended to me by Pews and Planes on YouTube, and I had heard the name, but I had never heard about his involvement in the Mafia, so I was pretty excited to be looking into this new guy because he's a relatively unknown person in my own knowledge, and this is my first venture into like the true crime. I've always loved the true crime episodes. I've always tried to structure what I do to be kind of like a true crime video, but just doing it with mafia criminals. So hopefully everybody that watches my videos won't be like, oh, this isn't the mafia. I'm not interested. I hope you guys really stay, hang out, and see if you're interested in this, because even though he's not a made member, he is involved in mafia affairs. And yeah, let's just see how it goes. I'm going to say this before I go any further at all. This episode is a very triggering one. There's a lot of talk of really nasty violence. There's child abuse, animal abuse, murder, sexual assault, child death. So if these things are things that trigger you, please protect your own mental health and maybe skip this episode. I won't be offended. Um, I absolutely want you guys to watch my videos. I want you to come hang out with me, but I also want you to protect your own mental health. So if this is something that you feel will trigger you, please feel free. I won't have my feelings hurt. Just don't watch this episode because this is, this is a very triggering one. There is a lot of really nasty stuff in this episode. With that said, let's go ahead and take a look at this week's criminal. Leonard Kuklinski was born on April 11th, 1935, in a New Jersey housing project in Jersey City. His parents, Stanislaw Stanley Kuklinski and Anna McNally, had three children together. Richard was the middle child. His father was a brakeman for the railroads. He was the son of Polish immigrants from Karwax Masovian Voidvyshyp. 
and I just butchered the shit out of that. I tried. I looked up the pronunciation. I'm sorry. His mother's parents immigrated to America from Dublin, Ireland. She worked at a meatpacking plant when Richard was a kid. So this is like way out of the realm of what we typically see the wives and mothers of the people that I cover doing. I feel like we're going to see a lot of things that are pretty different with Richard than the rest of the guys that I typically cover because he's not Italian. So him and his family don't really go by Italian traditions. Most of the time we see the Italian wives either being stay-at-home moms or they work in clothing or fabric warehouses. Going to work every day at a meatpacking warehouse is very far outside that norm. An Italian guy, it would be very rare to see him let his wife go out and do that kind of labor on a regular basis. I don't see it. I've never covered anybody that has a mom that does manual labor like that. You know, it's it's always not that serious of a job that they take on. So, yeah, as I said, it, this guy's not Italian, so we're going to see things go very differently with this one. As a kid, Richard did not get along with his parents, and he had a really, really rough childhood. His father was a fall-down alcoholic who came home absolutely wasted on a regular basis, and would beat his wife and kids. He would regularly rape his wife in front of his children as well. Kuklinski claims that he would have killed his father if he had the chance, and that he owes his father for his ability to kill people and not have any remorse or any feelings about it at all. Kuklinski had one older sibling. He had an older brother named Florian. In 1940, Stanley came home wasted out of his face and started his typical show of beating everybody in the house. His father got his hands on his older brother. This is a really heartbreaking story. So he ended up beating Kuklinski's older brother to death. Florian Kuklinski died at the age of eight years old from injuries that he got from the beating from his father. Instead of taking this incident and using it to put the father's abusive drunk ass away, the mom works together with the dad and they hide the fact that he just beat this eight-year-old poor innocent boy to death. They staged a scene and they made it look like Florian had fallen down a flight of stairs, which caused his death. Richard came home and his brother was displayed in a pine box in his living room. Richard went absolutely crazy when he saw that. According to him, he cried and shook his brother, and he couldn't understand why he wouldn't wake up. He begged him, you gotta wake up, because man, you're the only other guy I have, the only other person who knows what it feels like to be me. The authorities buy the fact that the kid fell down the stairs and that's how he died, because it's 1941, and... They don't really have very many ways to prove that that's not how he died. Science hadn't advanced to that point yet. So the whole cause of death thing is just kind of, you know, accept what you hear. Unless there's like a bullet hole or something very obvious, you can't really tell the difference between falling down the stairs or somebody beating your head in. For the most part, the family was spared having to regularly deal with the father's rage because after he killed Florian, he abandoned his family. Once in a blue moon, he would stumble into the house, wasted, and throw everyone a beating, but then he would leave again for months or years at a time, so it was... It, he, he stayed away. You would think that would be a good thing, right? Like, okay, the father is abusive, but he's out of the picture. That had to have helped Richard's childhood, right? Wrong. 
his mother is just as, if not more, abusive than his father. She didn't have the strength that the father had, so she didn't end up actually ever killing anybody, but she fought a lot dirtier. She would beat them with broom handles, which she would regularly break over his back or his body. She would use pots and pans. Anything that she was able to get her hands on, she would beat these boys with. She would hold his head underwater to the point of him almost passing out. So this woman is literally waterboarding her children. Things didn't get easier for him when he went to school. He went to a Catholic school, which was one of those, if you misbehave, the nun will beat you across the knuckles with a metal-edged ruler schools. Before he hit 10 years old, he had told a teacher that if she hit him one more time, he would break her effing head. In 1941, Richard would have been six years old. Can you imagine how traumatic it would be to know that your father killed your older brother and then watch your mother work with your father to lie about how he died and then just continue to be beat by your mother? Like, no wonder things turn out the way they did for these two boys. Right here is where I feel like it becomes very obvious that we're not talking about a mafia member. We're talking about a serial killer. A lot of the stuff that I'm going to talk about is stuff that we typically see in serial killers. This isn't a mafia member that kills people because he's doing his duty to the mafia or following orders. They typically view themselves as soldiers for La Cosa Nostra, and that's just not the case here. Richard grew up torturing stray cats and dogs. This is textbook serial killer. A quick Google search told me that 21% of serial murderers, 25% of aggressive inmates, and 45% of school shooters admitted to or had a proven history of childhood animal abuse. Jeffrey Dahmer first practiced his technique of cutting up and torturing live beings on animals as a kid. The list goes on and on, so it's not surprising to hear that Richard did this as a kid knowing that he grew up to be a serial killer. When he was asked about it, he told a story of a time that he had tied two cats together by their tails and threw them over a wire. The cats ended up tearing each other apart to get free, and he laughed at the noise that they made. Like, this dude is just straight up pure evil. Richard committed his first murder at only 13 years old. For years, Richard had been bullied. His family was extremely poor, he was a really small kid, and he was severely abused. So on top of the fact that his hygiene was definitely not being looked after, he probably didn't fight back when he was bullied or picked on. There was a neighborhood gang of kids called the Project Boys that would just not stop torturing this poor boy. Every time he would pass them, they would beat him up, they would call him names, they would just do the horrible things that kids do to each other. And Richard never had anybody to look out for him. That's super sad. Like, this kid is getting mercilessly beaten at home. He goes to school and he gets beat by his teachers. And when he finally gets a reprieve and he just has some free time to, like, walk around the neighborhood, these kids torment him. This poor kid's life is an absolute living hell. However, a lot of kids get bullied and they don't react the way that this mentally deranged kid did. After years of torture and abuse from this gang, he just absolutely loses it. He goes after the main ringleader of the gang, whose name was Charlie Lane. After so long of being taunted and tortured by this gang, 
Richard finally decides that he's going to fight back. He goes into the alley outside his apartment building where he knew Charlie had to pass to get home from school. When he did, Richard got into his face and wouldn't let him pass. He took a wooden hanging rod. You know that, that pole that hangs up in your closet that you hang your clothes on? Yeah, he had broken it off of his closet and was now using it as a weapon. And he hit Charlie so hard that it killed him. So now he's got a dead kid and no idea what to do about it. So what does he do? Oh, what any sane 13-year-old kid would do, of course. He gets a set of pliers and starts pulling this kid's teeth out of his head and cuts all his fingers off so that he can't be identified. Then he steals a car, takes the body, and dumps it into a South Jersey pond. It wasn't enough to just take out the ringleader, though. He went home, he grabbed an iron rod, and he attacked the rest of the gang, which consisted of six boys, and he almost beat each one of them to death. He was probably thankful they didn't die, honestly. I'm sure he didn't feel like pulling teeth and cutting off fingers of six boys, but they definitely knew from that point forward not to mess with this kid again. When he was asked about it later, Richard said that this was the point where he learned that it was better to give than to receive. Richard grew up being a small kid, but that all changed when he got older. By the time he hit 15 years old, he was 6 foot 5 and weighed 300 pounds. He became a pool shark in the area that he lived in, and everybody knew him or knew of him, and knew of that psychopath with a very short fuse and no remorse in killing people. So everybody knew well enough to stay away from him. He even started his own gang, the Coming Up Roses. He dropped out of high school in 8th grade and began his criminal career stealing cars and robbing houses in Jersey City and Hoboken, New Jersey. At 18 years old, 5 years after his first kill, he committed his second kill. This time, it was a man that had been making fun of him in the pool club that he was just in. This time, instead of beating him to death, he burned him to death in a car. Apparently, this dude had disrespected him at the bar, and so he waited outside the bar until he saw the guy get into his car and fall asleep in his car to sleep off the alcohol. Richard lit a gas can on fire and threw it into the car, effectively burning this guy alive. We're starting to see a pattern here that he's really very hypersensitive of being mocked, made fun of, or bullied. That's just my own personal opinion. I don't see anything where it says that, but to me, it seems like he's taking out his anger against his father on anybody that he perceives as treating him the same way that his father treated him. He was never able to hurt his father because he kind of just disappeared. So what does he do? He kills anybody that treats him the way that his father did. If they mock him, if they call him names, if they treat him like crap in any way whatsoever, he's going to kill them. By 19 years old, Richard Kuklinski was a serial killer. He would randomly kill homeless men in the alleys of New York, Newark, and Hoboken. He claims to have done this for the thrill of killing someone. He would experiment with different techniques of killing people. He talked once about shooting a homeless man in the head with a crossbow to see if he could kill somebody that way. He could. So he was just like walking down an alley and he had a crossbow in his hand. And he thought to himself, like, we all think that kind of stuff, you know, like, oh, I wonder if jumping off of this bridge would kill you or if you would just get really hurt or, you know, I, I wonder if this knife would kill you. Like, you know, you, we all think stuff like that. 
But this psychopath, instead of just, like, having that intrusive thought and then keeping on going, he decided to shoot somebody in the head to see if it would kill them. And it did. He would work here and there for the Dacavacante family, carrying out hits whenever they needed somebody that wasn't connected to them or their family to carry out hits. When Richard was a very young adult, he married a woman named Linda. I can't find exactly when he married her, but it says that he was just getting his life together and moving out of his parents' house, so figure somewhere around like 1953-ish when he turned 18. Together with Linda, he had two sons, Richard Jr. and David. His relationship with Linda was extremely tumultuous. They fought constantly. Linda was nine years older than Kuklinski and was just not about to take his shit. She had some experience in the world, so when he became abusive, she didn't back down. He started to work at a Manhattan film lab that pirated illegal copies of DVDs and pornography. They copied and distributed Disney films, blockbuster films, porn, like pretty much any kind of movie he was pirating. He had his own burglary group now with a few of his friends, Gary Smith, Daniel Deppner, and Percy House. Obviously, word starts to spread that there's this dude that will literally kill you for looking at him the wrong way. He would kill people for all sorts of things. He would be playing pool and somebody would look at him the wrong way and he would beat them to death with a pool cue. Somebody wouldn't pay for the pirated movies that he was selling them. Dead. Unlike a lot of other serial killers, Kuklinski didn't really have a preferred way to kill somebody at the beginning. The only thing that mattered to him was that the person that he was going after died. There was no MO. There was no pattern. He killed people with knives, guns, poison. After a while, he just got creative and started making up new ways to kill people. This makes it even harder to catch him or for police to identify that each victim belongs to the same killer. Because... If you have somebody over here that was shot, and then you have somebody over here that was stabbed, you don't automatically say like, oh, the same person must have killed these two. A lot of times serial killers have a specific way in which they do things. You know, you hear that people like to tie people up and, you know, have them hogtied. And then over and over and over, the, the victims will have been tied up and hogtied. And that's what kind of gives police an idea like, okay, these two people were killed with this by the same person. But we don't have that here because Richard doesn't care how he kills somebody. I'm going to stop right here and tell you that not all of the stuff in this episode can be fully proven. There's been tons of sources that will come out and dispute all of the facts of this case and say that Kuklinski is a liar and he did not do half the stuff that he says that he did and they'll dispute the facts of the case and they say that pretty much everything that I'm going to talk about in this episode is fake. Obviously, like, who am I? I don't know anything. I don't know more than the next person. So it could be all completely made up. It could be all just lies. I'm just telling you facts that I'm able to find out through research. Take them with a grain of salt. It's possible that it's all true. It's possible that none of it is true. It's possible that some of it's true. It's possible that Kuklinski is just a compulsive liar and that some of it is made up, but that some of it is true. And that's kind of where I'm leaning. I think it's probably somewhere in between. I don't think the numbers are as high as he says. I think that some of the more famous situations that he claims to have taken part in it's probably not true, 
But I do think that a lot of killings are attributed to him. I do think he killed a lot of people. By 1961, Richard claims that his body count is now above 65 people. Some sources say that the number could be as high as 100 by this point. In 1961, at 26 years old, he meets this bombshell of a woman. Like, I'm serious, this girl is a freaking baddie. She's 19-year-old Barbara Petrici, and they meet because they both work at a dock together. Richard can't do anything about it, though, right? Like, he's married, and he works pretty hard to maintain this family man persona outside of his, like, you know, nighttime killing habit. He... He works hard to show that he's a family man. Richard goes full charm on Barbara. Things are getting hot and heavy, and they start dating. The only problem is that Richard is a little overbearing. He's controlling. He wants to know where she is every minute of the day. He wants to see her all the time at work. He wants to spend every spare moment with her. She is the air that he breathes and the blood in his veins. He needs her all the time. But this girl is 19 years old, and she doesn't want a relationship that serious that fast. She goes to him, and she's like, yo, dude, like, chill, bro. So he takes this, and he cools off a bit, but not enough to appease her. He's still, like, way overbearing, and she's like, yo, like, I need my space. Let me breathe. And he just won't. They're sitting alone in a car one night, and Barbara turns to him and says, like, listen, I've had enough. I've asked you to cool off and give me a little space. You will not do it. So I don't want to be together anymore. I want to see other people. You go your way. I'll go my way. No harm, no foul. I just don't want to be in a relationship. So what does Richard do? Does he walk away, take it like a man, you know, handle it like an adult, respect her decision? No. No. None of that. He starts stabbing her. He stabs her multiple times in the back with like a decent sized knife. And he whispers in her ear that he owns her and she's not going anywhere. She starts freaking out, obviously, somebody stabbing her. And she starts yelling at him. So he does the only thing that he can think to do. He choked her until she was unconscious. I think he realized that he may have gone a teensy bit too far with the whole, you know, like, halfway killing this girl thing. So the next day, he shows up on her doorstep, and he has some flowers, and he's like, oh, honey, sweetie, baby, I'm so sorry. Lo and behold, this absolutely terrified girl <laughs> accepts his apology and takes him back, because, like, what are you gonna do? You tried to break up with this man yesterday, and he stabbed you multiple times. You almost died. What, what else? What other choice do you have? So after a while, him and Barbara decide that they're going to get married. He literally officially split from Linda on the eve of his wedding to Barbara. Honestly, I don't see it written anywhere, but to me, it seems like his marriage with Barbara was never real in the first place. I don't know that he ever got an official divorce from Linda. Like, he stayed with Linda until the day before he got married to Barbara, and it doesn't really work like that, you know? You don't just snap your fingers and say, like, oh, I want, I don't want to be with you anymore, and then you're divorced. No. He still has a wedding, you know, a legitimate marriage on the books, and you can't get married if you're already married. So, like, he may have married her, but I don't think it was legit. According to Kuklinski, he cut off Linda's nipples when he found her in bed with another man. 
that's not even what ended the couple's relationship. It didn't end until he married Barbara, but that's some sick shit right there. Like, this man is a legitimate psychopath. When Richard left Linda, Linda disappeared into obscurity, and she never came out about who she was or her relationship to Kuklinski ever again. Legit, I don't even know what her last name is. Nobody knows what her last name is. And he never saw her or the two boys again. Barbara had three miscarriages and a very, very difficult fourth pregnancy between 1962 and 1963. And that was definitely because he just would not stop beating on her. To get ready for the baby, he decided to no longer carry out hits. And he just started working at low-paying, menial jobs just to pay the bills. But he decided, you know, I have a baby on the way. I can't be out there killing people. So he put killing on hold. Although he stopped carrying out hits during this time, he did shoot and kill two men in a road rage incident. He killed four men who tried to negotiate the price of the merchandise that Kuklinski had stolen and was selling to them. And he tortured and killed two men who attempted to steal a truck filled with stolen goods that him and his crew had stolen. So, he's not carrying out hits for money, but he is still killing people. Barbara had three kids with Kuklinski, two girls and one boy. She gave birth to Dwayne Kuklinski, Christian Kuklinski, and Merrick Kuklinski. The couple bought a house together, a three-bedroom split level in Dumont, New Jersey. And the couple hosted neighborhood barbecues, and they had pool parties, their kids went to Catholic school, and the family attended church every Sunday. From the outside, this seems like a completely normal, functioning family. Richard did not follow in his father's footsteps, and he never once laid a hand on any one of his kids. He did abuse the shit out of them, though. He would beat the brakes off of their mother on a regular basis in front of them. Barbara would regularly show up to the hospital with broken ribs, a broken nose, just like all messed up. He would beat her over absolutely anything. Anything that he would kill a person on the street for, he would beat her for. Giving him an attitude, insulting him, embarrassing him, looking at him the wrong way. Anytime Barbara did any of these things, he just threw her the beating of a lifetime. Barbara knew better than to ever step out of line. Kuklinski regularly told Barbara that if she ever left, he would kill her mother and her sister. That's how he got him to marry her in the first place, threats against her family, and that's how he kept her around all these years. Merrick, the oldest of the three kids that they had together, recounts times that she was terrified as a kid. One incident was when he killed her dog, a Samoyed, in front of her as a punishment for coming home late. He would regularly destroy the house, he would destroy the furniture, he would beat the shit out of her mother when her siblings or her would piss him off. So, like, she would do something that would make him mad and he didn't believe in hitting the kids, so he would just start beating on her mom instead. She recounts countless numbers of times where they would be driving and she felt like he was going to kill her in bouts of road rage. As much as they knew that Kuklinski was a psychopath, they never had any clue whatsoever about what went on when he left the house. They knew that he was involved in, like, you know, shady business dealings, yes, but they didn't know 
that he was killing somebody nearly every time he left the house. Barbara always knew better than to ask where he was going whenever he would leave. She would just like say goodbye, make sure that he had his coat, and send him on his way. As brutal as he was to her, he would still come home and shower her and the kids with like lavish gifts. He would come home with like Christian Dior clothes, diamonds, jewelry, bikes, toys, like everything to try to make up for the times that he would brutally assault his wife physically and his kids mentally. Although they enjoyed the lavish gifts, obviously, they did feel like they couldn't take it anymore. Barbara worked with the middle girl, Christian, to work on a plan to kill him. They had put Valium in his meatloaf. Christian hated her father. There was absolutely no relationship between the two. They backed out of the plan, though, because they were too scared of what was going to happen if it didn't work, if he didn't die, and then he would come and kill them both. As much as he didn't have a relationship with Christian, he did have a relationship with Merrick. As the oldest of the three kids, she built a really strong bond with her dad, despite the whole killing her dog thing. She was the only one out of the kids and the wife that Richard would ever open up to. He would tell her about the murders that he committed. He would tell her about how much he hated his family, how much he hated his father. He would tell her about the abuse that he suffered as a kid. And he would confide in her that his father was the one that killed his older brother. Merrick was hearing these stories before she hit 10 years old. Like, that's a pretty big burden to put on a 10-year-old's shoulders. He didn't mind committing crimes in front of her either. He would take her to make collections, and she watched him beat a man to death on several occasions. She always just, like, kept her mouth shut, but like, Jesus, can you imagine that being your father? Can you imagine seeing your father do that? Richard had started to make a pretty big name for himself. Bodies were literally piling up everywhere. He was still working as a movie pirate, and he started working with the mafia, selling copied Disney, blockbuster, and porn movies to them. One day, Kuklinski got himself into debt with somebody that was in the Gambino family, an associate of Roy DeMeo's. DeMeo pistol-whipped him, but he really liked how fearless he was during this pistol-whipping incident that he actually liked him, and he hired him to start working for him. I did an entire episode on Roy DeMeo. He was a sick mother effer who seriously enjoyed killing people and torturing them. It was a well-honed craft for him. There was a name for his method of disposing of bodies, the DeMeo method, referring to killing someone, cutting up their body, and dropping pieces of their body at different dump sites. If you're interested in DeMeo, go check that video out, because that is one hell of a story. So DeMeo starts chilling with Kuklinski because, like, why not? They're both completely deranged, psychotic killers, so it's a match made in heaven. Plus, I don't think DeMeo has one actual Italian working for him. So it makes total sense that, like, he would adopt Kuklinski, a Polak and an Irishman, into the fold of his little gang. None of the people, with the exception of Chris, because he just wasn't that smart, had any expectation of becoming a maid member in the Mafia. None of them were Italian. They knew that because they were in Italians, it wouldn't happen. They all still worked for the Mafia, and the good part about not being a maid member 
was that they never had to adhere to mafia rules, and they never had to be stuck working with only one family. They were free to work with anybody in the entire mafia, from any of the families, or even the Jersey crew. Remember, DeMeo was pretty heavily involved in stealing cars and stuff like that, so his interests seemed to have lined up with Kuklinski's as far as, like, wantonly killing people, stealing cars, and just overall being a degenerate human being. Let me clearly state here that there is very serious question raised whether Kuklinski was actually ever involved in the mafia in the first place. Some people claim that he's just a complete liar and was never associated with the mafia, with Roy DeMeo, or any of the five families in the first place. Franzis claims that he was a liar and he wasn't involved in the Mafia, that he had never heard his name in his 25 years in the Mafia, and he's pretty sure he never worked with the Columbos because that was the family that he was associated with. Sammy the Bull says he's a piece of shit and a liar, but he doesn't really say much about his involvement in the Mafia. Like, he had only answered a question, like some dude was bringing up questions, like he would like mention people's names. And they mentioned Richard Kuklinski and Sammy the Bull was like, oh, he's a piece of shit and a liar. Like that was the extent of the talking about Kuklinski that Sammy the Bull did. So I don't know if that means like he was a liar in the sense of he made up certain situations because I will go over what happened between him and Kuklinski later on. But I don't know if that, that's what that meant of like, oh, he was never involved in the mafia in the first place or, oh, he made up this one situation. I don't really know. He doesn't go into it very much. So that's all I know. One thing that makes me really actually think that he may not have been involved in the mafia or DeMeo's crew is that I literally didn't mention Kuklinski once in my DeMeo episode. I honestly thought that it was a shortfall of my own that I didn't do enough research on DeMeo. Like, how had I not stumbled upon the name Richard Kuklinski in all my researching on Roy DeMeo? I didn't do enough research. I didn't, you know, something had to have happened. But the reason for that is because Kuklinski isn't mentioned even once in the book written about the crew, The Murder Machine. He isn't mentioned anywhere in any of the research I had done on DeMeo. So if he worked with him for that long and did that much work with him, why does he not show up anywhere? However, there is some pretty solid research suggesting that he did have some kind of involvement with the Mafia. Kuklinski started working with each of the five families, carrying out hits wherever they needed them to be done. He started hanging out more and more at the infamous Gemini Lounge and got more and more entrenched in Mafia affairs. As far as the killing went, he really still to this day does not have a preference for how he kills people. As long as the job gets done, any disposal is fine, you know? Like, if he is with Roy DeMeo, they'll probably use the DeMeo method. If he is doing something on his own, it doesn't really matter. As long as the person dies, it doesn't matter. He did have one way that he would be able to throw off authorities. A lot of the time, he would freeze his victims for months or even sometimes for years making it almost impossible to pinpoint the actual time of their death. That became pretty useful when he was the last known person to be seen with somebody or the last known person to be meeting up with that person. 
It would be very hard to pin it on him, though, if a body shows up years later looking like it could have been killed 10 minutes earlier. Because of this method that he used, he came to be known by authorities as the Iceman. Later, he would tell a story about how he killed someone with a maid member, and the person said, Damn, you're as cold as ice. But, like, really, that's not what happened. It, it really was detectives that gave him this name because they had found so many victims that had previously been frozen. The only kill that Richard Kuklinski claims to have ever felt bad about or felt any kind of remorse or anything like that was the time that he killed a Christian man. The man knew he was about to be killed, so he was praying to God. Richard told him, okay, I'll give you a half hour to pray to God. If God could come down and change your circumstances, you'll have that time. Pretty much like, you have a half hour for some miracle to happen, and if God comes down and does something, then I won't kill you. Obviously, God never came down, but can you imagine the terror that that man experienced? knowing that his death was a half hour away. Kuklinski would later say that this is the one thing that he shouldn't have done. He did feel bad about this. In 1970, it came out that Richard wasn't the only mentally psychotic person in the family. At 25 years old, Richard's younger brother Joseph made the papers. He had stolen a dog that belonged to Pamela Dial. He went to the girl and told her, like, hey, I found your dog and that the dog was on the rooftop and to follow him. Pamela, a 12-year-old girl that attended St. Anne's School, was absolutely adored by her family and friends. She was a small, petite little girl that always wore bangs. She had a nervous tick that consisted of her taking a big breath and swallowing. So like... So everybody that knew her said that she was the most endearing, sweetest little girl in the whole world. There's endless stories of boys that had a crush on her in school, that they would say that she had an amazing smell, that she had a super cute hairstyle, and her hair was really curly, and it framed her face perfectly, and she had a beautiful voice. She followed him onto the roof to go get her dog at 438 Central Avenue. On the roof... Joseph raped and killed the girl. After killing her, he threw her and her dog off of a five-story building. The dog didn't die. He had a broken front and back leg, so he laid on the ground howling, and all the neighbors heard the commotion and came out to see this 12-year-old little girl that had clearly been raped and thrown off the roof. Because the dog was howling, the body was found very fast, and the neighbors were able to get in touch with authorities really fast, which helped in pursuit of her attacker. Police caught Joseph pretty quickly, and he didn't really try to lie. He confessed to the crime almost immediately. If you know anything about jail, you know that there is one thing that is absolutely not tolerated whatsoever from fellow prisoners. People who hurt or sexually assault children. The guards would regularly encourage the big inmates to brutalize Joseph. By the time trial started, Joseph appeared gaunt and ghastly. He was sentenced to life in prison without much of a defense. I mean, he admitted to the crime. Since then, he has had his anus surgically repaired five times. He was regularly passed around as other prisoners' wives. He stopped showering and when the guards would literally force him to shower, he would go into the shower fully dressed. 
all of his teeth rotted and fell out. The prisoners would regularly contaminate his food. He was also not shy about talking about his crime to anybody. Prisoners, guards, anybody. By the end of his life, he had deteriorated into only talking to himself. When the media would ask Richard about Joseph's crimes, he really only had one thing to say. We come from the same father. Sometime in the 70s, Richard was scoping out a hit that he had been hired to carry out. He saw somebody else that just so happened to be scoping out his intended victim, only this other dude was doing it from an ice cream truck. He went and introduced himself, and it turned out that the driver of the Mr. Softy ice cream truck was Richard Prongay, another hitman that had been hired to kill the same dude that Richard was after. Prongay was a master of disguise. He was well known in the neighborhood as the operator of the Mr. Softy truck. I'm not sure if this is like a New York thing, but Mr. Softy is an ice cream truck that goes around and tells ice cream to neighborhood kids. Funny story, Prongay wasn't the first and most certainly was not the last guy to operate an ice cream truck for nefarious purposes. In recent history alone, in 2019, 46 ice cream trucks were seized in a New York City operation coined Operation Meltdown for dodging nearly $5 million in fines over a number of years. They had accumulated all these fines over 22,000 traffic violations, including running red lights, parking near fire hydrants, and blocking pedestrian crosswalks. There was a public turf war over a Master Softy when he started selling ice cream, and the Mr. Softy brand went after them because they're like, hey, that's our name. We're Mr. Softy. You can't just come out and say you're Master Softy. So they sued them and they won, but it still ended up degenerating into a physical altercation and multiple people were arrested. In 2011, 31 people were arrested, including the operator of a lickety-split ice cream truck, for being involved in a drug trafficking ring where people knew to be at certain spots at certain times, and over a million dollars of oxycodone pills, over 43 thousand of them were sold out of these ice cream trucks. Anyway, I just thought that was super interesting, so I wanted to like share it. Richard and Mr. Softy, Richard Prongay, became pretty fast friends. Prongay divulges to Richard that he is a special forces veteran. He used the ice cream truck for cover, and he was an expert in explosives and cyanide. Kuklinski rented out a garage across the street from the one that Prongay stored his truck in, and the two started to work together. The portable freezer on the Mr. Softy truck is where Kuklinski got the idea to freeze the bodies of his victims, and that's how he did it. It's never really corroborated where he froze these bodies. I just know that he froze bodies in an industrial freezer. Maybe he got an ice cream truck of his own, and that's how he froze people. That would make sense. Prongay starts to teach Richard how to use his own methods, and Richard starts to heavily use the method of cyanide to complete his kills. At this point, he's working with all five families, carrying out hits wherever they need him to, and he has his own little burglary crew with Gary Smith, Daniel Deppner, and his associates Paul Hoffman, Louis Mazgay, and George Malibrand in the drug and porn dealing industries. After meeting with Prongay and some beef going down where one of these guys were about to snitch, Gary Smith and Daniel Deppner were both found poisoned with cyanide and then strangled. Not too long after that, 
the bodies of Paul Hoffman, Louis Mazgay, and George Malibrand were also found. It was known that all three had been carrying around a pretty large amount of money on them, and all three had been stored in an industrial freezer for over two years before their bodies were ever found. He set this up because he was the last known person to be seen with any of these five guys, so he knows that a pattern is going to be picked up pretty quickly that this is him that's carrying out these kills. This is around the time that police start to coin him the Iceman. Despite the calculated move to freeze the bodies, one snafu in his plan is that one of these three guys had been found before the body had time to warm up to a normal temperature. Because honestly, if the police had found them days later, his plan would have worked. They probably would have had no idea that the bodies had ever been frozen, and their time of death would have been assumed to be recent. But when they found the body, and it was like way colder than it had any right to be, they were able to figure out that the bodies had been stored in a freezer for who knows how long. So that was his mistake. He just didn't let the bodies warm up enough after taking them out of the freezer. He should have let them warm up enough that they wouldn't still be frozen and then place them wherever he wanted them to get discovered. They identified the bodies... And when they went back to when they were originally missing two years earlier, they were able to find that Kuklinski was the last person that was known to have met up with all three of these men. The first thing that the police were able to link Kuklinski to was the murder of George Malibrand. Kuklinski shot him in 1980 in a dispute about a debt that Malibrand had owed Kuklinski. He put Malibrand's body into a 55-gallon drum in Jersey City. He filled the drum with concrete and left it on the pier. A sick little tidbit about this, nobody ever thought to open up the drum. And eventually, a mobile ice cream salesman opened up right next to this drum. Kuklinski would regularly go to the ice cream stand and buy ice cream and lean on the drum, and he would just, like, think about Malibran's body inside. Another crime that they were able to link him to was the murder of Louis Mazgay. Mazgay had disappeared the night before a business transaction was supposed to go down between him and Kuklinski, and even though there was never a shred of evidence... Mazgay was the one that they found before he had time to defrost. When he was found, he had a bullet in his head, and they were able to figure out that he had been frozen for two years before his body was dumped in September of 1983. Next, they linked Dan Deppner and Gary Smith's murders to him. The trio had been involved in a car theft ring together, but Deppner and Smith were just not pulling their own weight. In Kuklinski's eyes, these guys were just like the worst crooks ever, and they were going to get caught sooner or later. Since they knew about his involvement in crime, he killed them before they had the chance to snitch to authorities to save their own skin. Smith's body was found in a hotel room, stuffed under the bed, four days after Kuklinski had poisoned him with cyanide. He did it by putting the cyanide in his hamburger. People had rented the room, but... Smith's body just sat under the bed for four days while people slept on top of him and, like, lived in this room with a dead body in it. The last straw was when Deppner's body turned out. He had also been poisoned with cyanide, so the police knew that it was the same person that killed Smith. When they made the decision to carry out the sting operation and catch him, this is why that, that decision was made, was because they 
pretty much like, all right, this dude Kuklinski keeps popping up. It has to be him. On August 11th, 1984, Kuklinski killed Robert Prongay. I just realized that I've been calling him Richard all this time. This name, this man's name is not Richard. His name is Robert. Robert Prongay. Got messed up in my head because Kuklinski's first name is Richard. Sorry about that. His name is Robert. Robert Prongay. He's the ice cream man dude. When Kuklinski discussed Prongay, he said, he taught me a lot, but he was also extremely crazy. He would go into these neighborhoods and sell ice cream to the kids, then maybe kill one of their fathers. According to Kuklinski, that relationship went sour when Prongay reached out to him and asked him to kill his wife and young son. Prongay started talking about poisoning an entire reservoir in order to kill his family, which obviously would kill a lot more than just his family, but that wasn't something that really mattered to Prongay. As long as his family died, it was fine. It's something that bothered Kuklinski a lot. He had a very firm boundary that he never hurt or killed innocent women and children. And I mean, even in his own family, he, he hurt his wife a lot, but he didn't even hurt his kids. So it does kind of make sense. So when Prongay let him in on his plan and he asked him to kill his wife and kid and when Kuklinski said no, he was like, all right, cool, I'll poison this reservoir so that they die. Kuklinski shot him twice in the chest. Prongay's body was discovered in his ice cream truck on August 9th, 1984. He was actually already under indictment for making terrorist threats against his ex-wife and son. So if Kuklinski hadn't done what he did, Prongay probably would have just spent the rest of his life in jail anyway. Even though police keep hearing Kuklinski's name over and over, they have absolutely no evidence to tie him to any of these murders other than the circumstantial evidence that he was the last person known to have been with all of these people that were killed. After a while, five bodies have now stacked up, and these are just the ones that they are 100% convinced that Kuklinski killed. Who knows how many there are that, you know, they didn't link to him, but they know that for sure, without a doubt, these five bodies are attributed to Kuklinski. So they get the idea to use an undercover agent. ATF Special Agent Dominic Polifrone reaches out to Kuklinski to ask him to carry out a hit for him. He says that he needs a rich Jewish kid who was also a cocaine dealer, to be taken out. Obviously, Polifron records every interaction because he's an undercover agent. Of course he's going to. So they have it on recording, Kuklinski accepting this hit. Kuklinski also throws in a little tidbit saying that he planned to take out a couple of rats at the same time. These rats were Barbara Deppner and Percy House. Barbara was the wife of Daniel Deppner, who Kuklinski had killed earlier. And she was telling police about Kuklinski and how he was the last person known to be seen with her husband, Daniel. Percy House was also a former member of the gang who had flipped when he was arrested, which is actually what made Kuklinski take the step to go after Deppner and Smith because they were the last remaining members of the burglary ring that they had. Operation Iceman, as police had named the investigation, included tape of Kuklinski discussing the effects of cyanide. He said, it's quiet. It's not messy. It's not noisy. You can spray it in someone's face and they go to sleep. 
he even talked once about how he had gone to a club at one point and he had sprayed cyanide in somebody's face and the dude just like fell and it looked like he had a heart attack and nobody ever figured out that he was actually murdered. It just looked like a heart attack and nobody tested him for cyanide. When Kuklinski went to trial in 1987, he did say that Smith and Deppner hadn't even been killed by cyanide, since it was next to impossible to prove cyanide poisoning. So he couldn't have been responsible. Polifron had spent 18 months pretending to be Kuklinski's friend. He went by the name Dominic Provenzano for this whole time. He posed as a drug dealer, which is how he formed the relationship with Kuklinski. So pretty much he went to Kuklinski and was like, hey, I'm a drug dealer. I can get, you know, cyanide and that kind of stuff if you will carry out this hit for me because I'm not a killer, but I do need somebody killed. The agent did a few interviews about this, about his time with Kuklinski, and he talked about how cautious Kuklinski was. He said that it took him a few months to finally even meet Kuklinski. And when he was finally approached to meet him, somebody called the store phone when he just so happened to be in the store. And the person on the phone said that the big guy wanted to meet him. When they went to meet at Dunkin' Donuts, Kuklinski asked Polifron if he could get his hands on some pure cyanide. In exchange, obviously he would pay him, but he would also supply him with an assassination bag, complete with a silencer, a gun, ropes, handcuffs, you know, like, the works. Everything you could ever need or want for the crime of killing someone. After that initial conversation, they hung out for a couple of months. They got to know each other, and he was able to obtain a lot of really direct evidence. Finally, because, remember, police had known that it was him that was carrying these attacks out for a really long time, but they weren't able to actually prove it. All they had was circumstantial evidence. So now they finally have an agent that could witness firsthand Kuklinski putting cyanide on food, killing people in hotels, shooting people and storing their bodies for years, intimate details about his life and about his kills, like how he squeezed cyanide into a nose spray, and that was a trick that he had picked up from a chemist. As much as Kuklinski has a whole shit ton of bodies under him, it's still to this day up for interpretation whether or not Kuklinski was a serial killer. The investigator says no, but a lot of other sources say yes. Typically, a serial killer is somebody who murders three or more people in a period over a month. So anything over a month, you know. They have a cooldown period in between murders. Kuklinski obviously meets these criteria. The murders are each separate events, so he meets this one too. And they're typically driven by a psychological thrill or pleasure. A lot of serial killers do it for the sexual thrill of it. And a lot of stock is put into the actual motivation, what makes these people kill. This is where the gray area comes from. Kuklinski is what people consider a special case. Typically, hitmen are not considered serial killers because they do the murders purely for financial gain. Whereas serial killers do it for motivations such as thrill, sexual gratification, all of that stuff. Kuklinski is a special case because typically, hitmen kill people for hire, but they rarely go out and kill people for any other reason. Kuklinski kills people for hire, but he also gets a huge gratification out of it. He gets a lot of pleasure and exhilaration from it, and he'll kill someone on the street for no good reason. So he just has zero regard for human life. 
After the long investigation yielded some success, Kuklinski was arrested on December 17, 1986. He had met up with Polyphrone to get cyanide that he planned to use for a murder, and Polyphrone gave it to him and said it was cyanide. Kuklinski tested it by putting it in a hamburger and feeding it to a stray dog. When the dog didn't die, Kuklinski got suspicious, and he didn't go through with the murder because he was like, well, what the hell, why would this guy sell me something that clearly isn't something that can kill anyone if the dog didn't die? So, obviously, he knew Polyphrone was a cop. So now he knows his cover's blown, and they know that he knows his cover's blown. So the police set up a roadblock and arrest him two hours after the official sale. When he was arrested, he had a gun on him, so that caused him to catch an extra charge. And his wife was also arrested and charged with disorderly conduct for interfering with the cops when they were arresting him. His son was also charged. It doesn't say why his son was charged. I'm not really sure but his son did get charged. She was later let off when Kuklinski pled guilty to some of the charges to get the charges for her and her son let go of. At the trial, multiple past associates testified against him, including Percy House and Barbara Deppner. Obviously, <laughs> Polifrone took the stand, you know, he's the one that set this all in motion. Kuklinski's defense was that Deppner actually killed Smith. And who knows how Deppner died? Nobody. Because the cyanide wasn't able to be proven to be in his body. So he could have just died. You can't put a murder on him when you can't even prove there was a murder. He argued that House was given immunity to testify, so he was unreliable. And Barbara had lied to law enforcement in the past, so she was unreliable. And really, he is just a victim, and he never did anything wrong in his whole life. Obviously, the jury saw right through these lies and sentenced him to a minimum of 60 years in prison. He did escape the death penalty, though, because they found that the deaths were not proven to be by Kuklinski's conduct. In other words, they know he killed them, and they want him off the streets, they want him in jail, but there was not enough proof to give him the death penalty. After he knew that he was going to spend the rest of his life in jail anyway, he had nothing left to lose. He had admitted to killing Mazgay and Maliband, and he ended up pleading guilty to these deaths. He was sentenced to an additional two life sentences to be served consecutively, and he wasn't eligible for parole until he turned 111 years old. He also admitted to killing Hoffman, but even though he admitted to it, prosecutors didn't bring that up during trial. They had a pretty weak case, and it looks like they thought that he was lying about it. Or they figured that even if they did get a guilty verdict, it wouldn't really affect anything. He would be sitting in prison for the rest of his life, regardless of how many additional bodies they put on him. So they just didn't even find it worth it. And even though they knew that he had killed Hoffman, they just didn't even bring it up. He got sent to Trenton State Prison, which was the same prison that his brother was serving the rest of his life at. Once Kuklinski wasn't worried about getting in trouble anymore because dude's sitting in prison for the rest of his life, he started to sing like a canary. He spoke with HBO multiple times, and he completed three documentaries with them. There was also a movie made in 2012 called The Iceman, and it's a pretty heavy-hitting cast. Michael Shannon, Ray Liotta, and Winona Ryder were the stars. It brought in $4.6 million into the box offices and an additional $3 million in DVD and Blu-ray sales. 
So that's pretty cool. His wife officially filed for divorce in 1993, but she said that she only did it for the money. She still continued to go visit him. She would only go visit him like once a year, but she said like, I didn't divorce him because I didn't like him anymore. It's just, he has a lot of debt and I don't want to be given that debt because I'm the free one. So if I'm his wife, that's going to continue to happen. So I'm going to divorce him. A little while after this happened, he confessed to his part in the murder of an NYPD officer named Peter Calabro with Sammy the Bull Gravano, and he was given an additional 30 years onto his sentence, and that was a few years after his initial sentence. So again, this man's sitting in prison for the rest of his life. There's nothing really more to do about it, so whatever. This is where I was earlier talking about Gravano and how I think that this is kind of proof that Kuklinski did have something to do with the mafia. So in this case, they say that Sammy the Bull Gravano hired Kuklinski to kill Peter Calabro. So Kuklinski did kill Peter Calabro, but he did it because Sammy the Bull hired him to. According to police, Gravano provided Kuklinski with specific weaponry and equipment that he needed to carry out the hit. So he had a specific way that he wanted this guy killed and he even gave him the gun. He did everything for him. Gravano was found not guilty of this crime, but Kuklinski was found guilty. And let me tell you, as somebody who is involved in a murder case where the killer is still walking around on the streets to this day, and the cops know who it is, they have confessions, they have a whole lot of evidence and information, and they haven't even so much as arrested this guy because there's not enough evidence. I'm here to confirm cops do not indict without being extremely sure that a crime happened, especially when someone was found guilty of it. Kuklinski is serving an additional 30 years for this murder. Remember, he confessed to another murder and they didn't even take it to trial because they couldn't prove it. Even though he straight up confessed, he said, hey, I did this. They didn't bring it to trial, but they did bring this to trial. They only took what they could absolutely prove to trial, regardless of a confession. They don't just trust the word of one criminal. They have to have crazy amounts of evidence to take to trial. Victoria Gotti thinks that Sammy the Bull didn't cop to this when he originally coped to the 19 murders because... Either he didn't want this or the police didn't want it. And the police didn't want a cop killer to take the stand because nobody would take his word for the rest of the testimony that put all the other mafia guys away. So if we know about Sammy the Bull, we know that Sammy the Bull turned government witness and with his testimony, a whole lot of people went to jail. So either he didn't admit to killing the cop or the police knew about him killing the cop and they didn't put it on trial because they wanted all of these mafia guys to go to jail on Sammy the Bull's word. And they're pretty much saying like, okay, nobody's going to believe a cop killer. If, if, they, if this guy takes the stand and he's a proven cop killer, when he's trying to put away these other bad guys, even though he's saying he's involved in 19 murders, those are 19 gangland murders. Those aren't cop kills. So that's why they're saying that he didn't cop to it. The incident that I was talking about, the murder that I personally was a part of, obviously I didn't commit the murder. It was my best friend. Um, but I've said over and over on this channel that I want to do a full episode about it. And the day I hit 100,000 followers, we will go and do an entire episode about the murder of my best friend. 
and I really can't wait to tell you guys, but I want my audience to be fully there and built before I tell his story because this story deserves to be heard by as many people as possible. So let's get me up to 100,000 followers so you can hear the insane story about my best friend who was murdered and the cops did absolutely nothing about it. And that dude is walking around free as a bird seven years after the crime. When I do do that episode, I will be giving names and I'll probably get sued hardcore for that episode when I make it and I will happily sit in court so that the world can know that the police the owner of the company, and the killer all walk around on the streets to this day. As far as Kuklinski goes, he filed for personal bankruptcy in prison, and he listed debts of $160,000 and assets of $300. I'm going to go through some of the crazy shit that has come out that he talked to the media about in interviews in the years after he went to prison. Kuklinski claims to have killed over 100 people, and he even says at some points it could have gotten to 200, it could have gotten to 250, he's not 100% sure, but he knows it's over 100. He says that he killed people using a crossbow, ice picks, bombs, guns, grenades, cyanide, just all sorts of crazy ways. He would attack and kill homeless people regularly as practice for the legit killings that he was about to commit. I am also going to stop right here again. This is another time that I'm going to mention that a good majority of what I'm about to tell you is a lie. It seems like Kuklinski had this weird tendency to lie and insert himself into murders that it's proven he has absolutely nothing to do with. I'll tell you whether or not officials believe that he really had a part in the hit, and for a majority of them, the answer is no. But don't come for me saying like, oh, this is a lie, that's a lie. I don't care. I don't care if it's a lie. I, I'm just here to say what he claims to have done I'm going to tell you most likely whether or not he was involved. Most of the answers is no. Most of the time he probably wasn't actually involved and he's just trying to beat, build up his street cred. But I'm telling you these stories, but at the same time, I know that they're probably not true. But this is what he said. I kind of feel like it's similar to the dude that's out here like doing YouTube videos and lying his ass off. He claims to have been there when Lucky Luciano died of a heart attack in an Italy airport. He claims to have been there when Castellano died. Like, all these crazy, completely made-up stories, and the interviewer sits there and, like, goes along with it and, like, feeds into it. Like, oh my god, really? That's so crazy. I'm I'm not gonna name names because I don't want this video getting removed by YouTube, but if this situation sounds familiar, you're probably thinking of the same guy as I am, so take it with a grain of salt, okay? Now, by me saying that, that is not me saying that he never did anything. It was proven that he killed all those associates of his, it's proven that he froze bodies, and that there's a bunch of murders that it is proven that he did too. So... I'm not saying this man is no, is a slouch. I'm not saying that he's famous for not ever actually doing anything. I'm just saying that the claims that he makes in these famous crimes, he probably wasn't involved, okay? According to him, out of all the kills that he completed, 50 of them were for joy and pleasure, and the other 150 were for higher jobs. He says that his hit range spanned 18 states, including Hawaii. According to him, he took part in the hit of Jimmy Hoffa. In his earlier documentaries, he claims to have not taken part in the hit on Hoffa, 
But later, he said that he and three other men grabbed Hoffa in Detroit outside of Mackis Red Fox restaurant. Kuklinski claims to have killed him by stabbing him multiple times in the car while they were driving with a large hunting knife. He says that they drove from Detroit to New Jersey with Hoffa's body, where he put the body in a 50-gallon barrel and set it on fire. He says that he buried the barrel in a junkyard in Kearney, New Jersey. He claims that later, when one of the men involved became a rat, they dug the drum up, moved it to a different location, compacted it into a cube, and sold it as scrap metal to Japan. And the whole point is, like, they're making new cars. Sorry, I had to just, like, stop because I don't know why, but I just got, like, the overwhelming feeling that I'm being watched. I don't know what that is. Like, I, I don't have a curtain on my window right now, but I got really scared, so I went and got my dog. I don't know if it's because this, like, is a scary story, and it's, like, super creepy, so I got really scared. I was like, all right, I gotta go get my dog. So, forgive the, uh, the break. And now you see my dog. <laughs> so, anyway, nobody believed this at all whatsoever. They do not believe that he has anything to do with Hoppe's disappearance. Cops that worked on Hoffa's case had never even heard Kuklinski's name. He was never a suspect, and none of the facts that he said made any sense whatsoever, and they doubted the story so much that this story wasn't even put into Kuklinski's biography. In real life, what's most likely to have happened to Hoffa is that he pissed off Russell Buffalino, the Pennsylvania family boss, and Anthony Provenzano. Charles O'Brien, Hoffa's driver, picked him up from the restaurant, and he and Sal Bergiulio, Gabriel Bergiulio, and Thomas Andretta, and maybe, maybe Frank Sheeran, worked together to do something similar to what Kuklinski had stated. Put him in a 55-gallon drum, loaded him onto a truck in Detroit, and shipped him off to an unknown location where the drum was squashed in a car compacting machine. It just so happens that these details were brought up at the grand jury for Hoffa, so they're public record. So it's not that crazy that the details so closely align because it's public record. It's easy for Kuklinski to get his hands on this information, so he reads this information and then just claims to have taken part in the hit. Another high-profile hit that Kuklinski claims to have taken part of is Carmine Lilo Galante. If you watch my channel regularly, you've seen the Galante video that I did pretty recently. So if you're interested in what really went down, go watch that video because I go into the Galante hit in great detail, so I'm not going to really go into great detail here. But that is an actually really interesting story, so if you're interested, go check that video out. This is another hit that Kuklinski's name was never brought up in. Nobody ever suspected him. Nobody ever named him. And he's never even been thought of in this investigation. Nobody believes this one either for a few reasons. He stated that the owner of the restaurant was Galante's cousin, Mary. But the restaurant was actually owned by his cousin, Toronto, and Toronto was a dude. He claims Galante came into the restaurant with two dudes, but in reality, he came alone and everybody that had gone to the restaurant had came later. But he had just read about the killing, so he assumed that the bodyguards that took part in the killing came into the restaurant with him, but they didn't. They joined later. He claims that he came into the restaurant before Galante and ate at a table 
acting like a regular patron, but obviously that doesn't make any sense. All accounts from witnesses claim that they saw three dudes that killed Galante enter and leave the restaurant together. There's a lot of other discrepancies in the story. It just makes no sense. And it's clear that he just did a little reading about the killing and thought that he could convince people that he was in on it to like increase his street cred or infamy or whatever. But it's just, it's a lie. Yet another high profile killing that he claims to have taken part in is Paul Castellano. I actually went to Spark Steakhouse yesterday. It was an absolute blast, and I was so excited to be at a place that had like such significant mafia history. This obviously has nothing to do with the story. I just wanted to throw this in here. I'll put a picture of me at Spark Steakhouse over here because it was so fun, and you guys deserve to see. Kuklinski claims that Sammy the Bull hired him to take out Bellotti, Castellano's underboss, who was also killed in the hit on Paul Castellano. I'm not going to go into what actually happened here because I actually do plan on doing a Castellano video pretty soon. And a majority of that episode is going to be going into great detail on what went down on that hit. But this one, just like the last, is riddled with holes. Honestly, I was going to just like point by point dissect this one and the next. But I really want to go into depth on this whole thing on the next episode, so just believe me when I tell you that none of what he says makes any sense and it's not real. He had nothing to do with the Castellano hit. The last high-profile killing that he claims to have taken part in is the killing of Roy DeMeo. He claims that he shot DeMeo in a parked car where his body was found and that he put the body in the trunk and walked away. In the other killings, other than Hoffa, the man who wrote his biography, Philip Carlo, wrote the story of his involvement with like such belief that you could walk away believing that it's real and that he really did have a part in these prolific crimes. With this one though, Carlo straight up admits like this is probably a lie. In this one, just like the last, he was never a suspect, his name was never brought up, his account doesn't line up with the facts, and it was just obviously another lie to try to increase his fame. Richard Kuklinski died on March 5th, 2006 at 70 years old at St. Francis Medical Center of Kawasaki disease. Kuklinski is a pretty hard read, honestly. On one hand, he was this vicious, brutal killer, and I do believe that he killed a lot of people, and he had a part in even more killings. I do believe that he worked for the Mafia at some points. It's literally on record and proven that he killed at least five people. Police knew him as the Iceman far before they had ever zeroed in on him individually. And honestly, New York is such a huge place that a lot of these killings could have happened and just not been documented. Especially if he used cyanide, it could not even have been written down as a murder. At the same time, you have to acknowledge that he lies his ass off on a regular freaking basis. So it makes it really hard to believe anything that comes out of his mouth. He obviously wants to come off as like this super important, like tough guy that took part in the most prolific murders to ever happen. But that just makes you question everything that he's done. And it makes it seem like he really hasn't done anything. Some people question whether or not he was ever even involved in the Mafia at all, but I personally, I truly believe he was. I spoke before about the cop that he killed and he implicated Sammy the Bull. Well, it just so happens that Kuklinski died right before he was supposed to testify against Gravano at this trial. An autopsy was done and they claimed that he died of natural causes, 
But I 100% could see Gravano having Kuklinski killed in jail to do exactly what it did. Without Kuklinski's testimony, there wasn't enough evidence to go after Gravano, and he was found not guilty. Kuklinski killed people all the time without anybody ever being able to trace the cyanide, so what's to say that somebody didn't do the same exact thing to him? So, that's all I have on this brain teaser, twisted and psychotic man, Richard Kuklinski. Thanks so much for watching. I hope you enjoyed hanging out, and I hope you get a chance to check out some of my other videos and you come for any of the future ones I put up. Please don't forget to like, share, subscribe, comment, follow, do all the things, and I'll see you next week. Bye!